Broadcasting from Baltimore, Maryland, and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here is your host, Dan Ferris. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value. That's a value investing service published by Stansberry Research. We have a really cool show lined up for today, so let's just dive on in. And I'm going to start out with the rant. Now, the rant this week, I've got a couple of things on my mind. And, you know, sometimes I'm just not a quick study and I can't mush it all together into one long narrative. But I want to tell you the couple of things that are on my mind because I'm pretty sure they're related. The first thing is a short piece by a guy named Michael Harris, who I follow on Twitter, excuse me. And Mike is a quantitative investor. He's a pretty smart guy. Mike Harris NY, at Mike Harris NY on Twitter. And he put out a little piece um, recently on his website where he was talking about this idea of the stock market has become, it's like a currency market. He said it's forexized, right? The for, foreign exchange markets are called forex markets. And he, he says it's forex, it's like currencyized markets. And what he's talking about is just this sort of whipsaw action that you see where the market seems to respond really severely to one bit of, you know, often kind of political news or another, right? The most recent thing, we saw the market just rally on Monday when Trump, uh, President Trump announced he was going to kind of delay some of the Chinese tariffs that have been worrying traders and investors lately. And boom, makes the announcement and boom, the market shoots straight up after, you know, a huge down day preceding it on Friday. And then, you know, the next day, then it was opened up down one and a half percent. It's just really crazy action that seems to respond to all kinds of these sort of macro political announcements. And of course, you know, the biggest one of these is the Federal Reserve. All they have to do is say, you know, the market falls. Well, actually, we can go back farther than that. We can go back farther. I was going to go to December of 2018, but you can go back to like 2008, right? Everybody's talking about the world coming to an end. Then the Fed steps in with basically takes interest rates to zero from what was it, 2008 to about 2015. And, you know, essentially prints money to buy bonds, right? That's what quantitative easing essentially was about. Suppresses interest rates. The stock market has tripled. And, and then here we are. And then they start raising rates. And then they get really serious about raising rates. And the stock market loses almost 20%, 19% in three months last fall. Boom. And then uh, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, then he just kind of caves in and says, well, well, uncle, 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 I'm not going to do this anymore. We're not raising rates anymore. And then he kind of telegraphed, you know, a rate cut. And off of that Christmas Eve bottom, right, the market was down like 19% as of Christmas Eve last year. The market rallies 28% pretty quickly off of that bottom uh, when the, the Fed says, oh, okay, okay, uncle, we're going to stop hiking and and start cutting. 
Um, you know, Trump announces tariffs. The market drops 6% in a few days. He delays the tariffs. The market rises 2% in one day. It's just like, it, 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 it's a little crazy. And so I understand where, um, you know, Michael Harris is talking about the market has become like a currency market that responds to political announcements. That's the first thing on my mind. And the second thing on my mind is something I've discussed before, and it's this idea of um, through the speculative episodes, just from reading about um, most of the, the speculative episodes of the last, say, 100 years or so, starting in 1929, but even really before that, in the 19th century and before, there, there seems to be this trend of um, losing you know, the old conservative ways. In each speculative episode, there seems to be one vehicle, one investment, one security sometimes, where you go going into the boom, um, it was a conservative thing. Coming out of the boom, it was turned into toxic waste and ruined lots of people's lives by, you know, just losing them a lot of money. And I think the prime example of this uh, no pun intended, is the U.S. 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, mostly the prime mortgages. Um, but really, the U.S. 30-year mortgage. The U.S. 30-year mortgage, it's like one of the glories of modern finance. Investors get three decades of steady income at a fixed rate, secured by real property in one of the richest countries in the world, where there's adequate rule of law, there's property rights. And I'll tell you something, property rights are less common than you might imagine. And you can read a book called The Mystery of Capital by a guy named Hernando de Soto uh, if you want to learn more about that. So, you know, property rights, rule of law, good, good income. And, you know, many U.S. mortgages, right, the, the better ones, carry this implicit government guarantee by conforming to the Federal Housing Finance Agency loan limits. And they meet the funding criteria for Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Um, and so, you know, those are like the really high quality mortgages. And, you know, like maybe best of all, 30-year mortgage provides a yield higher than similar dated treasury bonds, right? So with the 30-year bond, just over 2% today, which seems crazy, 30 years, 2%, you know, it ought to be like six or seven or eight or 10 or something. The, the Spider Bloomberg Barclays mortgage-backed bond ETF yields has a current yield of around 3.35%. So that and they invest in those higher quality Fannie and Freddie conforming loans that I mentioned. So, you know, these mortgage-backed securities, they've been around a while. I think they really got cooking in the 80s, you know, and and they were mostly a boring thing that rich people bought to get a little more yield, you know, safely, right? They were about preserving your capital and doing something a little more remunerative than buying treasuries. Until Wall Street saw an opportunity to turn them into toxic waste. Well, how they do that? I'll tell you how they did it. By changing virtually every feature of the 30-year fixed-rate prime mortgage that we just named. And then slicing and dicing them and adding leverage and, and convincing the world that, you know, the, these new securities that they made up out of all this crap were still AAA rated. Right? So it still had the veneer of a conservative investment, but it was really toxic waste inside. Right? So they changed, instead of fixed rates, they, we got adjustable rates, you know, which would rise and fall with the benchmark interest rate. Instead of prime loans, well, all of a sudden, 
you know, to high quality borrowers. Well, that gave way to subprime loans to low quality borrowers, some of whom had no income, no job, no assets, so-called ninja loans, right? And, you know, they say the devil's best trick is convincing you he doesn't exist. The bankers did a similar trick, right? They, they lent money to people who couldn't pay it back and charged them this variable rate of interest, and they got the ratings agencies to kind of bless it all with their highest rating. Uh, and then they convinced investors that it was all really safe because, you know, it was all predicated on this idea that housing prices would never fall again. And there was plenty of demand because the Fed had, you know, pushed interest rates down during the tech bubble meltdown of 2000, 2002. Investors were starved for yields. So, you know, it kind of set up this perfect storm for this stuff. And the U.S. financial machine issued more than 17.7 trillion, with a T, mortgage-related securities from 2002 to 2008. And Wall Street sliced them and diced them, putting them into these weird instruments called CDOs and CDO squared. Don't bother asking what's in them. To understand a typical CDO, an investor would have had to read 15,000 pages of documentation. 15,000. Yeah, but that's nothing. Because they had the CDO squared, right? CDO times CDO. You would have had to read, read 750,000 pages. Okay? 700, I said that. I did say that. And I, it's not a mistake. 750,000 pages. And Warren Buffett told, uh, I think it was Market Watch or CNBC or somebody back in a 2010 interview, it can't be done. In other words, nobody knows what they own here if they're buying this stuff. And you know you know what happened, right? Uh, housing prices did fall and these leveraged mortgage funds at, at Bear Stearns blew up and you know that kind of started the whole thing going and it, and it all collapsed like a house of wet cards. And Lehman Brothers failed, 150-year-old institution. Washington Mutual failed, 119-year-old institution. 89-year-old AIG failed and got bailed out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. More than 300 bank failures over the next couple of years, the Great Recession, et cetera, et cetera. And I think mostly because Wall Street turned the 30-year mortgage into toxic waste. And you have to appreciate, and I've made this point before too, you could, they couldn't have done this with mining stocks or futures or any, or biotech or, you know, tech IPOs or any, they couldn't have done this with anything else. It had to be something that was a large enough market that was seen by everyone as being highly desirable because it was conservative and safe and worth owning because there was a little more yield to it, right? So you got to pick just the right thing to turn into toxic waste if you really want to do some serious financial damage. And, you know, the same thing happened back in the 1920s with investment trusts. This was, the investment trust was a conservative vehicle. I mean, it was invented in Scotland, for God's sake. The Scots, right? The ultimate conservative financial people. And I don't know if it was invented there, but, but it really, it kind of got going there in the 1870s. A guy named Robert Fleming and some other investors formed the first Scottish trust in 1873. And these were very good investors and they brought a, a sense of professionalism Fleming built up a good track record. He got into uh, railroad bonds and he, he made like 64 trips to the U.S. from Scotland back and forth, you know, and, and the round trip took like a month, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, he spent 64 months of his life on boats to do research in the U.S. 
for his investors and did really well. But but then, you know, in the 20s, the go, you know, the, the, the 20s was a highly speculative era. And, you know, there were very few trusts in the United States before the 20s. By the beginning of 1927, there were 160. Another 140 trusts came into being that year. 186 in 1928. I think it was like 250 some, roughly one per business day in 1929. For the first part of that year, it was one new trust per day. And they were all these levered instruments. They weren't the old conservative thing. They were, they used leveraged and they bought other leveraged trusts. It was insane. It was insane. And it blew up horribly. And, you know, like the Goldman Sachs Trust, which was one of the bigger ones, I think the peak share price was $222 a share. And I think it was um, a dollar, a dollar and a quarter at the bottom, something like that. Just, just got obliterated because of the leverage. And, you know, everybody sold. They were all levered up. That was, that was basically the 1929 crash. You know, people buying on leverage in all different forms. But you see that you see the commonality, right? There was this conservative thing and Wall Street got a hold of it, turning it into, into toxic waste. I think something worse is happening today with negative interest rates. These people are meddling with the primal forces of nature. They have corrupted the time value of money because all the negative yielding bonds in the world, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, are sovereign debt of Western countries like Switzerland and Sweden and, and, well, Japan's not a Western country, but it's a developed country, and Germany. And, you know, this is the stuff that you, again, this is the stuff you buy if you got a lot of money and you just want to get a little bit of yield and you just want to put it someplace safe. But now they've turned it into toxic waste by meddling with the primal forces of nature and forcing the yields to go negative. So now you're guaranteed to lose money with this stuff if you hold it to maturity. So how this all comes out, I don't know, but I know that the time value of money has been corrupted here. And that can't end well. People use benchmark interest rates to value everything that, that produces cash flow. Businesses, buildings, bonds, you name it, stocks, everything. Anything that produces cash flow, you, you, to, to value it properly, you must choose some rate of interest, usually based on some prevailing rate of interest. Well, the prevailing rate, you know, 15 trillion worth of debt in the world is like negative. And then we're, we, you know, the 10-year treasuries and so forth are being pushed down farther and farther. Uh, the, the yields are being pushed down farther and farther because, well, at this point, people are kind of scared and they're buying bonds. But And, of course, they've got the, the Federal Reserve behind them wanting to push rates lower. It's just all smells terrible to me. And like I said, I don't know how it ends, but I don't think it ends well. It makes investors' job really, really difficult. I'm going to leave it there. They've meddled with the primal forces of nature. The stock market has become like a currency that responds to political announcements. Up, down, one and a half, two percent, three percent in a day. And and you've got this horrible corruption of of the what used to be like the just about one of the safest places in the bond market. 
I don't know where it ends. I don't know how it all ends. I don't think it ends well, though. All right, so that's, that's the rant for this week. You know, write in. Help me out here. Connect the dots for me. Uh, write in to feedbackandinvestorhour.com. So let, let's check out some news right now. What's new in the world? Well, what's new in the world is all this negative yield Fed stuff. That's The headlines are full of this, right? So right now, the big sort of question mark, and I don't know, by the time we put this thing out, put this podcast live on the internet, I, I don't know <clears throat> where things will be, but it looks like the two and 10 year yield curve is going to invert, meaning that under normal circumstances, the 10-year yield would be higher than the two-year yield because it's riskier to lend somebody money for 10 years than it is to yield to lend for two years. And because of that, you, you know, you have to pay more, right? You have to pay more to borrow for, for 10 years than for two. But right now, as I speak to you, I hate to do this, and give away the secret sauce, but we're recording this thing on Tuesday. And right now we're getting really close. And as I speak to you, I'm just going to get a quick quote here. The two year is at 1.5, just call it 1.57% yield. And the 10 year is at, just call it 1.59%. So within roughly 200, or I guess that's 20. Whoa, within roughly 20 basis points? What? No, no, two. Holy moly, that is ridiculous. This thing, these things are like, they're almost the exact same instrument at this point. You, you realize what that means? That means, why would you, it, 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 this is why people say this is a harbinger of, of recession, by the way, because why would you ever lend money for 10 years if you get paid the exact same amount as you do lending it for two years, right? It does you no good to take that extra eight years of risk. And, and you know, we're a couple of basis points away from this happening as I speak to you as, a, as we record this. So, you know, that's why that's one of the reasons why the stock market has been weak lately, because people, you know, people who think they know something are are worried about this stuff. They're worried that this means we're headed for a recession. Recessions are bad for stocks, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't I don't know what else to tell you about that. You know, just sit and wait and see what happens. Now, personally, I think at this point, you can't own enough of the short end of the yield curve because well, I should preface that. If the Fed really is going to, if they're really beginning a rate cut cycle and it wasn't just one and done, and I think that is likely that it was not one and done. If, if this is a rate cut cycle that has begun, you probably can't own enough of the short end of the yield curve, right? Because the, the Fed funds rate, the, the one the Fed messes with when they're fooling with the primal forces of nature is an overnight rate. So- you know, you would think that the short end of the curve would come down since, since the short end and the long end are exactly the same right now. You'd think the short end would get pulled down, meaning the price would get pulled up more sharply over the next, I don't know, year, two years, 18 months, whatever. It, not two years, probably a year to 18 months, something like that. 
so you know you, you you I've been telling people to to hold cash, and I know wh- one of my friends, Jeff Ross, um, who runs Velsher Velsher Capital. He was a guest on the show a while back. His biggest position that he's ever had in his fund is the short end of the curve. I think he's got like twenty four percent in it. You know, because it's basically cash, and and it's probably you know we're probably looking at a rate cut cycle, and if that's the if that's the case, then I think the short end is going to come down harder, and and the meaning you know yields go down, prices go up, right? They travel in opposite directions. So what's the other primal force of nature I was talking about was you know. Well, negative interest rates. So I, I'm going to read you a headline that I'll just read it. Danish bank launches world's first negative interest rate mortgage. Jiske Bank, that's J-Y-S-K-E, I don't know how to pronounce it, will effectively pay borrowers, pay borrowers, 0.5% a year to take out a loan. As far as I can tell, this is, where is this? This is on The Guardian. As far as I can tell, this is not a parody. This is not the onion. This is real. Denmark's third largest bank has begun offering borrowers a 10-year mortgage at negative 0.5%. And it says it's going to do, or no, another Danish bank called Nordia says it's going to offer 20-year fixed rate deals at 0% and a 30-year mortgage at point. 5%. So positive 0.5. You'll actually have to pay. You won't have to pay to borrow at 20 years and you'll get paid to borrow at 10 years. And at 30 years, you know, you'll have to pay just a little something for the bank to take 30 year risk. This is weird. How does this end up? How do banks make money? I, I don't know. You tell me. But I wouldn't, I sure as heck wouldn't want to own shares in a European bank right now, unless you believe this is the bottom. You know, this is unsustainable. It's got to turn around. But I don't know. I don't know what kind of a bet that would be. And the world is just a freaking weird place right now. There was an article in the Financial Times. Yeah, here it is. It says, Only 3% of the global bond market now yields more than 5%, the lowest on record. 3% of every bond on earth yields more than 5%. So if you're looking for yield, you ain't going to find it in the bond market. And that's part of the point. That's part of why I say they're messing with the primal forces of nature. Because... You can't get yield anywhere, and it pushes people into more speculative investments. It's insane. And then they've got this chart in this Financial Times article. I mean, it's basically showing you that Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, Japan, they're all, you know, huge parts of their yield curve is all underwater, all negative yielding. How does it end? I don't know. All right. I can't take much more of the news. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. I, I, I do want to mention one last thing, which is kind of weird and sort of off the topic of messing with the primal forces. So WeWork um, is this company that basically rents out 
you know, office space. I mean, and they're, they're going public. They've accelerated their IPO filing. So the CEO is this guy, Adam Newman, I think his name is. Yeah, Adam Newman. And the board of directors, let me just read you the filing. That's the thing from the filing. There's a little note on personal, personal loans here in one of the public filings by WeWork. And it says, Adam currently has a line of credit up to $500 million, um, of which approximately $380 million principal amount was outstanding at, at July 31st, 2019. The guy's borrowed $380 million, okay? You got that? Uh, the line of credit is secured by the pledge of approximately, and they don't have the number, but X number of shares of Class B common stock beneficially owned by Adam. They extended credit to Adam totaling $97.5 million across a variety of lending products, including mortgages, secured by personal property. So this guy is borrowing like, I don't know, almost $500 million based on his ownership of WeWork stock. And then they've also lent him uh, some of that based on, you know, the personal property that he used the money to buy. That sounds insane to me. He's he's front running the IPO here, right? The 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 company's not public yet, and he's front running the IPO by borrowing against his holdings. And good timing, guys. Good timing. We work. The market is falling falling apart, and you guys want to go public because this guy has borrowed five hundred million dollars. <laughs> that struck me as insane and worth noting. All right, we've got a great interview. Let's get to that right now. All right, time for our interview. Been really looking forward to this. Today's guest is Tobias Carlisle. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and managing director of Acquirers Funds, LLC. He serves as portfolio manager of the firm's deep value strategy. Tobias is the creator of The Acquirer's Multiple. He is also the author of the books, The Acquirer's Multiple, Concentrated Investing, Deep Value, and Quantitative Value. Tobias has extensive experience in investment management, business valuation, public company, corporate governance, and corporate law. Welcome to the program, Tobias. So nice of you to come and spend time with us. Hey, Dan. Thanks for such a kind introduction. You bet. Now, Tobias... I usually start out um, with folks in your profession who handle, you know, other people's money by asking them, like, at what point in your life, how young were you? What was the earliest inkling you had that this was your career path? I came to it really late. Uh, I was 30 something before it happened. I, I, I was a I was in a lawyer for a decade before I started uh, working in finance, and I I, I graduated from law school in uh, the early 2000s, and my first day of work was the very top of the dot-com boom. I started in April, and I thought that I was going in to do VC-type stuff and IPOs and listings and that kind of stuff, and all of that just disappeared, and the first thing that I, the first stuff that we started working on was, um, Mergers and acquisitions, because that still goes on when the market gets gets beaten up. And uh, then there was this emergence of these, th they were kind of the corporate raiders from the 80s who came back 
we didn't really know what they were called. They, they, they've subsequently been called activist investors, but we sort of didn't. They were all older guys, much older guys uh, who had been around for a long time. You know, I was a young, very young guy then. And uh, my, my, I, I just couldn't understand what they were doing. I'd read some Buffett. I'd read some security analysis, not really understanding it. And uh, they'd go after these businesses that had, they were losing money. You know, there were the dot coms that had raised a lot of money had no real business plan, were just burning cash. And these guys were trying to get control and I could not understand what they wanted because I had this idea that, you know, you only wanted to buy businesses that, that made a lot of money. And I went back and read security analysis, realized that what they were doing was trying to get access to the cash. You could just, you don't have to keep on running a terrible business. You can stop that terrible business. You can liquidate that company or you can use the cash to go and buy other companies, which is what these guys were doing on a very small scale. And then there was that reemergence of private equity. You know, it had been leveraged buyouts in the 80s and it came back as rebranded as private equity. And so that was what I did. A lot of um, activist defense because we had bigger clients. So we tended to be on the other side and a lot of uh, leveraged buyouts take private type transactions where you have a, a company listed on the stock exchange. You take it private, you lever it up. And uh, so that was that was how I got my start. And I and I. As I was going through that, I watched what these guys were doing. And it's an enormous amount of effort to take a company private. There's a lot of contracting. It's very illiquid once you get it there. It's, you can't shift it, but you get very good returns. I could see what these guys were doing, and I could see equivalent companies on the stock exchange. You don't have to pay a takeover premium to get control of them. You, you can open up your brokerage account, and you can buy them. And if you make a mistake, you can tip it out the next day. So I sort of had this um, – I had this – very deep value approach without really knowing what it was, just having read Graham, having read the old Graham security analysis right at the very back, chapter 28 or whatever it is, where he talks about uh, the, the role of uh, the relationship between managers and shareholders and the liquidation value. And so I started doing that and I got some good results. And that was basically when I sort of started, that, that was what interested me. You are speaking my language, Tobias. You really are. <laughs> I mean, all this value stuff, Ben Graham, I love it. So let's see. I, I really want to talk about the Acquirer's Multiple, which, I mean, to me, the Acquirer's Multiple, it's like a movement. It's a website and a book and an idea and, a, and an actual multiple that you spend substantial time in your book, you know, spelling out what it means and what it is and why it's good. Let's, let's start with the core idea here. In, in your book, The Acquirer's Multiple, you point out that this one metric, enterprise value over operating earnings, is turns out to be a wonderfully lucrative way to screen stocks, essentially. Is that, would you say that's an accurate representation? Right. So the, the way that it came about, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'd been working as a, I was working as a lawyer doing these mergers and acquisitions, also investing on my own behalf and doing a lot of the liquidation value investing, which is the old net current asset value that Graham writes about. I didn't appreciate because this was sort of the very early 2000, 2002. There were a lot of these companies around. I didn't appreciate that that was an unusual occurrence in the market. The modern markets are much more expensive. Most companies, it's very rare for a company to trade as cheaply as that. The, the only time that, that it happens, they're kind of like cicadas. They only come out, cicadas I might be using. I don't want to confuse anybody with my Australian accent. They only come out like every seven years or so. 
And so okay, I, Tobias, I, hold I, on I a second. Sort of disappeared. Hold on a second. We got to tell people what we're talking about here. Just describe what the what is the Ben Graham net net idea that you're talking about. Sure. So a net net is if you you take the most liquid part of the balance sheet, which is the cash, the receivables, and the inventory, and then you deduct all of the other liabilities of the company. So you you basically uh, it's a very not many companies actually have any residue left over after you do that step, but there are some that have that, and then you try to buy at a market capitalization that is two thirds or less of that number. So they're very very cheap companies. There's very few of them around, and they always have terrible businesses when you when you buy those companies, and so they're very they're unusual. They just don't come around that often. And I thought in 2002, as I was buying them, next time this happens. I'm going to go and buy a whole lot of these. And so I basically, I invested, but not a great deal until the 2007, 8, 9. And I'd been working as, a, as an attorney in mergers and acquisitions. I went in-house, worked for a, uh, I'd worked in the States for a little while in San Francisco. I was at tech, uh, doing tech acquisitions, bolt-ons for a bigger company. And then went back into Australia to work as a general counsel of this uh, telecommunications company that was laying dark fiber and a subsea cable. And basically that got bought, uh, the market crashed, all of a sudden these things were around again. So I started buying them and I wrote a little blog called Greenbacked, where I just described tracking these things down. I wanted to have an activist in place. And then the market recovered. And I realized as the market recovered that it wasn't a great strategy that you could only employ it once every seven or, you know, it, it's been much longer than seven years now, it's 10 years. So what, what can you do in the interim that still has that same uh, deep value Grahamite approach where you're looking for balance sheet value, but then also looking for some very undervalued business attached to it. So you can employ that through the entire cycle. And so the answer to that, I went back and I looked at what the private equity guys do. I looked at what the activists were hunting for. And what they were hunting for was that, uh, that undervalued balance sheet or un, uh, a lazy balance sheet attached to a business that's throwing off some free cash flow or, or the accounting equivalent of that, which is the operating income. I did some research and I found that that's a very good strategy. And I, I hooked up with Wes Gray, who is a PhD student at Booth, uh, the old Chicago School of Business, which is a great quant school. So we went and tested every single bit of academic or industry research on fundamental investment to find out what worked, what had stopped working, whether there were these things from the 30s, these little ratios and metrics that still worked. And we put that together into a book called Quantitative Value. And so what, what fell out of that was that this acquirer's multiple was actually the best performed individual metric over the full data set that you can, the, the CompuStat CRISP data set that runs back to about 63. And, um, and that was sort of the, that was the genesis of, of that multiple. And that's when I started using it. But one of the unusual things that I noticed as we were doing that testing was that once you get into the very undervalued stocks, there's this really unusual behavior that occurs. It's sort of a step through the looking glass a little bit when you, when you get into the deeply undervalued stocks, because they do these very counterintuitive things. And sometimes what you want is a worse business. So th there's this, this is a, this is a well-known bit of research from Henry Oppenheimer about net nets. And he says, if you're looking at two different net nets, you have one is 
profitable and one is unprofitable. The unprofitable one will perform better than the profitable one. And if we then look in the profitable ones, the dividend paying profitable one does worse than the one that doesn't pay a dividend. So it's all of these things that don't really make a great deal of sense, but that philosophy extends through the whole, uh, the whole of these deep value stocks. So I became very interested in that, what drives the returns to these things. And I wrote deep value in 2014 to kind of describe what it is. And it's this very powerful force mean reversion. And it's also the influence of activists and private equity firms. So mean reversion, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because of course, as we sit here, after, uh, you know, 10 years of a bull run that's tripled the stock market. And as we sit here with corporate profit margins, still, you know, much thicker than average, we are, I, I feel like we are awaiting a massive mean reversion that is stubbornly not happening. And we start to think, you know, people start to doubt themselves. You know, you start to hear people say things like, well, you know, maybe, um, Maybe these tech companies that are these, you know, virtual monopolies or near monopolies, this is a whole different world we live in and things have changed and, and essentially, Tobias, it's different this time. And you even have somebody like, like Jeremy Grantham saying, oh, well, maybe it is different this time. But I mean, I think I know where you stand. You don't, you don't think it's different this time, do you? <laughs> I hate I, I, I hate it to sound as arrogant as I'm about to say this because I have because I, I think that it is really the central question if you're a value investor or if you're an investor, is it in fact different this time? The thing is that that is the question that we always ask at the top of every single bull market. And the case for why it is different this time is always very compelling, which is why it's asked and it's it's entertained by very serious people. I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a data driven investor. I, I've, even though I've only been in the markets really for sort of, I think it's 17 years, something like that. My, my, I look regularly, I run back tests. I look at very long-term data and I've looked at these periods where value has underperformed and the market has been very frothy as it is now. They always look the same. There's always very high margins, unusually high margins, unsustainable margins. So you know, you would know Grantham's got a great line about that, even though maybe he's trying to walk it back now. But he says that if margins stay too high, then something's gone very wrong with capitalism. Warren Buffett has a similar similar line where he says if margins are much above 6%, then uh, then it's it's not sustainable. I forget his exact words. I might be muddling the two the two quotes together. But what, what tends to happen is that the markets get, you set interest rates too low, you're going to see very frothy, high margins marginal businesses survive for much longer. They can borrow money at a rate that's not real. That even though if you pin the interest rates low enough, that, that tends to be what happens. So you get silly businesses like WeWork coming to market uh, that basically probably wouldn't survive in a more normal rate environment and may not survive in any case uh, after listing. My, my view is that these things cycle. We're at the very top of the cycle. It looks uh, like it'll never mean revert, but it always looks that way right before it does. So I think that what, what will happen is margins will compress, we'll go back to more normal multiples. I don't think it really is gonna matter what the Fed does, maybe we'll see negative rates. I don't think it's going to matter. I think that the reason that value, so this is a, this, lots of people know this, value hasn't done very well over this last cycle, this 10 years. So 
Value did well out of the bottom of the 2007-9 bust. It did well until about mid-2010, but it struggled. And that's a long, it's a very long period of time, nine years to sort of underperform the market. And that's, that's unprecedented in the data. You can look at Fama French data, uh, CompuStat data, lo lots of different data sources and see that this is the longest and deepest underperformance of value stocks relative to the market and relative to, to, to glamour stocks or growth stocks or the more expensive part of the market. I, and that's, that has led a lot of people, including value investors, to feel that that sort of deep value style or value investing itself is broken. And, it, and then they, they, would, they would point out, they would say, look back over the last 30 years, you know, it didn't do very well in the 90s because we had the dot-com bubble. It did okay through the first part of the 2000s. But then, you know, it's, it's struggled again since then. So over the last 30 years, it's really only outperformed for about five. And so therefore, that means it's dead. I think if you look underneath the hood and you can devolve the returns to it, you can see that what has happened is a lot of that is just the, the strength in the market, which is unusual. The market's at, on many metrics, it, it's more expensive than it's ever been before. But uh, value has still done what it should do. Value still returned, had pretty good returns over the last decade. It's, it's 13% plus, and as a result, value itself is a little bit rich to its long run mean. It's just that the, the expensive part of the market and the market itself are multiples of where they have been before. So I think what happens, we're gonna go through a bust, it's gonna hurt value, and I think people will write off value then, but I think that growth and the market are gonna get crushed. So I think if you're investing through a period like this, it helps to be long short, uh, or I would say be, be in value stocks, because value stocks are gonna are going to be hurt less than the rest of the market. You sound like me. <laughs> I've said all this stuff, almost all the same exact stuff. But well, it's, it's right. Yeah, Tobias, I, I want to walk you back, though, because earlier you, you talked about, you know, the Ben Graham net nets, and you can only do this every seven to 10 years. But there is an example that, that worries me that sits in the back of my mind and worries me, and it is Japan. And as you know, at any, at any given moment, you can go to, to the Japanese market and find a couple of hundred net nets. And I, I have my view on this, but I want to know um, what you think the likelihood is that, you know, the U.S. sort of goes the way of Japan, whose, whose stock market, of course, struggled, you know, for, for a long, long time. And, and, and it's still struggling. Uh, Ten years ago, I would have said that the very the difference between the U.S. and Japan is that Japan interfered in its economy so much. They've got all the cross shareholdings between all of the companies, and they prop up the banks and they set interest rates way too low, and that creates these zombie companies that just struggle along. And I said the difference between Japan and the U.S. is that the U.S. would never let that happen because the U.S. is way too. It's got this, you know, bright red capitalist streak, red in tooth and claw. They love to let the rip and tear merchants go in and pull these companies apart. So it doesn't happen. It doesn't stagnate. Somebody's going in and making the whole thing start working again. Now, I'm not, too, I'm not so sure and I'm a little bit worried that probably we do look like Japan. The only saving grace is there's research out of Japan looking at the performance of value stocks in Japan. So value has been a great performer in Japan, funnily enough. It's, it's the only thing really that has worked. And the reason that it works is that, you know, that the way that the way that value 
the way that a value strategy or a value fund or a value investor makes their money is they buy these things at a big discount to the market. And then the mean reversion causes the underlying that, that those companies to, to, to go up a little bit faster than the market because they're trying to get back to the, to the average valuation. People can see that they are a little bit cheaper. And then you sell out of those companies that are now a little bit more expensive and go and buy the cheaper ones. And that's that, that ratchet effect does sort of generate returns. It's the only thing that works in a market that's declining or flat or getting beaten up. And so it has worked really well in Japan. So my sort of ideal scenario is that we probably do go into something like that and then value is the only thing that works. I think that value has worked globally. You can look at basically every stock market except for the US. I think value's worked pretty well. I don't think it's worked so well on an MSCI global basis, but it's worked in individual companies, countries. Most countries are trading at a big discount or are only just back to where they were in 2007. The US is unusual in uh, recovering so quickly and then pushing on beyond that, that peak in 2007. Most of the rest of the world has traded down below it. So most of the rest of the world looks like Japan did. And, you know, Japan topped out in the 19, early 1990s, 1990. And the last time I looked, it was sort of 25% below still. So I think... Uh, I don't mind a little bit of stagnation because I think that that'll work for a value strategy. I think it'll be very tough for anybody else who's just in a, if you're in an index fund, if you're paying your three basis points, I think you're going to get three basis points of value for at least the next decade and possibly two. Yeah, you know, you mentioned, I'm glad, I'm glad you started out by saying you were a little worried that the US is starting to look like Japan because that was sort of my thought. And, and as you began describing, you know, the government interfered in the economy. They kept rates too low. There's too many zombie companies. I thought, yeah. you know, you're ta- you're still talking about Japan, right? You're not talking <laughs> right. about the U.S. So, but it's a I, here's what I think: there's a big cultural difference too. It's like, and you and you alluded to that, right? We we have this cultural thing where when companies sit in that zombie-like state for too long, somebody we have the. Uh, the legal framework where somebody can just come in, take control, usually, and and rip the thing apart and put it back together or whatever they have to do. Whereas, you know, in Japan, that's kind of a less common thing. I, I hope that I, I I hope that America recognizes what a powerful force for good that that is, because any time that that starts happening. There'll be a lot of media, there'll be a lot of politicians who come out and say, this is a terrible thing that this is occurring. But it is the, uh, it is the thing that keeps America evergreen. Yeah, one of them, for sure. Uh, you know, in terms of businesses and things and capital, you know, the constant recycling of capital. I, I totally agree. So let's talk about uh, one of the more interesting details in your book, The Acquirer's Multiple. And when I read this, I have to tell you, it just blew me the heck away. And yeah, you, you mentioned, um, you, you alluded to this earlier, but I wanted to get more into it because it just blew me away. You back-tested this Acquirer's Multiple against, of all things, Joel Greenblatt's magic formula. And it like, it beat the heck out of the magic formula. And I was like, whoa. I mean, the chart that you put in your book is like, whoa, it beats the heck out of this thing. And it made me wonder, like, how do you, in your acquirer's funds, 
you know, these effects like magic formula or acquires or even like the small cap effect or value effects, they tend to be, the way it tends to work is, you know, you, you wind up having to buy a 500 or a thousand securities and the return tends to be concentrated in a very small number of those, but it's really hard to pick which ones are going to be. So it made me wonder, like, how do you personally use the acquirer's multiple in your day-to-day, -day, you know, research and security selection? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Let me just back up a little bit and talk about the acquirer's multiple and the magic formula. So the acquirer's multiple is one part of the magic formula. I should make that very clear that the reason that I compare it to the magic formula is the magic formula uses, Joel Greenblatt calls it enterprise yield, or sorry, uh, earnings yield. And that's, that's basically the inverse of the, mul the, of the multiple. It's just uh, the operating income on enterprise value. And then he combines that with return on invested capital, which is the more profitable a company is based on the invested capital in it. And you would think that what that is trying to get at, and which is he's explicit about this, it's a Buffett-like strategy where he's trying to buy good businesses at fair prices. And I think that that's a, the, the logic of it is very compelling. But when you test it, you find that and that does beat the market. And we, we tested that in, I've tested that in quantitative value, deep value, all of the books. When we've thrown everything out at the academic gold standard of backtesting, we've lagged the, all of these things that you would do to it to, to really find out if it works or not. It does, it does work. It does beat the market. It's a great strategy. But the acquirer's multiple, which is one part of it, just by eliminating that quality component, that high return on invested capital component, if you just focus on the cheapest stocks, you do better again and you do better on a risk-adjusted basis. And it doesn't really make any sense until you realize that what these companies, often what it's trying to buy are cyclical companies that um, what, the, what, the, what the magic formula tends to do is it buys these cyclical companies at the top of their cycle because that's when they look most profitable, even though they're cheap. And as they cycle down, then they become less profitable. And so what the acquirer's multiple does is it just, it, it, it sort of randomizes that error. It's just trying to buy things that are really, really cheap and that leads to better performance. But you're right, if, you, if you're constructing one of these portfolios, what they tend to have is a very long tail of performance, of return. So the returns, it's hard to know which company in it is going to generate the performance. And when I first started back testing all of this stuff about 10 years ago, I found that when I would run these screens, that the output of them was sort of nonsense. I'd look at these companies and I'd say no sensible investor would buy these companies other than in a portfolio that's 500 or 1,000 securities. And I don't want to do that because I, I'm a, I'm a, I think of myself still as a sort of more traditional Grahamite value investor. And a portfolio should really, there's no reason to run a portfolio of more than 30 securities. So I've written a book called Concentrated Investing where we looked at portfolio management because I realized pretty early on that stock selection is about half the battle and managing the portfolio is the other half of the battle. It's hard to understand if you haven't run a portfolio, but that's, there's a lot of return in just getting the rebalancing and the size of the portfolio, getting those things right. Sizing positions is very important. And so what I do is we use that as the very first cut. So we, we look at the acquirer's multiple and we cut what comes out of that is a, is a list of names. And then we go through the names and we do a full valuation on them. We want, you know, we want cash flow that matches the accounting earnings. That's very, very important because that gets you out of a lot of the more fraudy type things 
which are sort of more accounting shenanigans, financial engineering. And then I want to make sure that they're buying back stock. Because if you're buying back stock, that's a, that's a, that tells me several things. One, the free cash flow is real. It's actually money that's being thrown off that they can do something with. It also tells me that management recognizes that the company's undervalued and they're doing something about it. That's very powerful. That's a very good management team. So I want cheap on an acquirer's multiple basis, throwing off cash, buying back stock, or alternatively paying down debt. That's a good, that's a good signal as well on the long side. And then if you have those companies, the list of names that comes out of that, I could show that to a discretionary value investor and say, you know, you can go through and do a discounted cash flow evaluation on all of those companies. And I, we do that as well. And you will find that they're all deeply undervalued, genuinely deeply undervalued. They're good businesses. It's just that at the moment, there's some, they're at a bad part of their cycle. They've had, a, they've had some scare, something else has gone on, which is why they're too cheap. There's no question about the fact that they're too cheap. Most of the time, the response is, well, what, how do they get back to fair value? Graham was asked that question in a commission in the 30s after the, after the great crash. And he said, it's one of the mysteries of the business. And, and I agree, it is one of the mysteries of the business. Why does mean reversion work? I don't really know. I just think that it's the, it, it, it's the, it's the actions of investors, fundamental investors, private equity firms, activists, deep value guys like me, fighting these things that are too undervalued and buying them and each incremental purchase pushes it back to, to fair value. And the underlying businesses also have mean reversion in them when they're doing badly. You know, management's typically not just sitting on their hands. If they're buying back stock, they're doing other things as well. And the businesses that aren't as well capitalized tend to move out. So you see that quite frequently that when, a, when a, an industry is struggling, when a business is struggling, the rest of the industry is struggling, some of them will leave and that business will get a little bit better. And so over a period of time, that business will start earning super normal returns. And that's when all of these guys come back into the industry. And that's when typically, you know, we're, we're selling at that stage. Okay, Tobias, I, gotta, I have to address a particular topic here. Obviously, you've, you've demonstrated that, um, you know, this acquires multiple is really powerful. You're a deep value guy. I mean, I just, uh, I love everything I'm hearing. But you and I both know that to really do these strategies, value strategies, um, really almost any decent long-term strategy, but value in particular, you got to have an iron discipline. You got to be able to hold through some bad times. How do you handle that? How do you handle the, the down times? I mean, because they, you know, everything under value has underperformed. So, you know, if you're, you're still around, you've been around for 20 years or so, here, <laughs> you, you have to be able to deal with this. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with those down periods? Well, the, the thing that makes it, it's not easy, but the thing that makes it easier is to look back at the, at, at the full data set and see these periods of underperformance. Now, I would, if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, and it's probably more than five years, I've probably been saying this for more than five years, but it, it had already been such a long period of underperformance by that stage. I said, this is probably getting to the point where this is a little bit silly and it's going to turn around. I didn't foresee that this would be the, the longest and worst underperformance of value. And I have to say, there aren't very many guys now who believe that it can turn around. I have these conversations, you know, on a regular basis, even value guys have sort of tended to become a little bit more growthy because that has something that has been something that 
has worked over the last five years. That is ahistorical. That is not usually the case. Usually the more growth you have in your portfolio, the when I say more growth, I mean the higher the prices that you pay, that if you're seeking the better businesses, the compounder type businesses, typically the returns haven't been as good in those businesses over the full data set as they have been for the deep value stuff. But we're in a period now where it has been better, which happens on a regular basis. I think there are about seven or eight instances running back to about 1951 where we've seen these sort of periods of three or four years of underperformance. And then typically what happens is value goes on to have a very strong run and everybody remembers that they were value investors and come back, comes back into it. I believe in the very long run data. I, I believe that that is still representative of what will occur in the future. I don't think we've suspended the laws of supply and demand, the business cycle. I think that that all still exists. And I think that the only time that you should, the, the moment that you start questioning that, it's time to double down on your value strategy. And so I, I, I would much rather now be a deep value guy than any other strategy because I think that value is about to have a monster run. That is bold, I have to tell you. So we're, we're, we're just about out of time here. And um, I always like to ask you know, guys like you who are really got their, their money where their mouth is, if you could leave our reader with just one, I'm sorry, I always say our reader. They are our readers, but they're also our listeners. If you could leave our listener with just one thought, what would that be today? That's a great question. I, I, I don't want to uh, double up on what I have just said. This, this is what I would say. I would say the, the, what I basically just to reiterate what I just said, the laws of supply and demand and the business cycle have not been suspended. It feels that way because we're right at the very top of the cycle. But when we go back down the other side, and we may already be right now going back down the other side, everybody's going to get religion again. And when they, when, they, when they realize that those laws have not been suspended, they're going to rush back into these kind of stocks. So look at the, I would say you can test this stuff for yourself. Go and look at the very long returns to value. Look at the periods where, they have, where it hasn't worked, which is the late 1990s and, and currently, and then earlier periods where it was, you know, pick, pick, a, pick a famous boom, the, the electronics boom, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the dot-com boom, the more recent dot-com 2.0. Those are the times when value doesn't work because the, the market becomes enamored of these growthy, glamorous companies. And you will see that after every one of those booms, there follows a period of uh, terrible losses for those types of businesses and very good returns for value. And I think that that's, that's it's not me saying that. It, that's just what the data says. It's a compelling argument. Well done. Yeah. That, that's, that's a great message. All right, Tobias, thanks a lot. I'm really glad you could join us. And I, I really hope you'll, maybe you can come back and next time the, uh, the mean reversion will have begun. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for having me, Daniel. It's, it's, it's great talking to a fellow traveler. I really appreciate the questions. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Always good to talk to a fellow value traveler. And look, if you... Um, you know, I, I, I don't hide that I'm a, a value guy through and through. And if all this makes sense to you and you say, yeah, I'm a value investor too, man. Give me more. Give me more. <laughs> well, I got a lot more to give you. Uh, if you go to extremevalueoffer.com, you can find out how to get my newsletter, Extreme Value. And I'm 
pretty sure we live up to the title. We're, we're good value investors, myself and Mike Barrett, who is my, I call him my chief research officer. Uh, we, we found some pretty good stuff lately. And I've got like three gold-oriented picks, which are excellent businesses trading it pretty dirt cheap. Two of them right now are pretty darn dirt cheap. And they're generating lots of cash flow. As a matter of fact, they're, one of them is almost like those companies that Tobias was talking about during the interview. And we've got lots of other good stuff in there too. So, which I think will tend to do a lot better, even in a downturn, you know, as Tobias described, and I agreed with him, than, you know, all the growthy sort of tech stocks that people are in love with these days. So yeah, that's extremevalueoffer.com. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have you aboard. All right, time for the mailbag. Listen, you know the mailbag, man. It's it's really important to me. Uh, it's where you and I get to have a conversation. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of the most fun we can have together <laughs> on the internet, you and I, uh, and still talk about investing. Uh, so just email with questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at investorhour.com. I read every single one of them. I even read the Russian spam and I respond to as many as possible. This week, I have to thank you all. I was overwhelmed. There was tons of feedback and I was going to do a whole big, long extra feedback segment because I had like eight, <laughs> eight emails that I wanted to read, but I thought, you know, okay, okay. We can't, we can't let this get too out of control. We'll be doing an hour of feedback. So, but I've got a few, I've got uh, three or four of them here. And I, what I did was if you don't hear your entire email, it's because I just pulled the question out for, for everyone to hear so that we could do as many of these as possible. All right. So we're going to start with number one here by Matthew S. And Matthew S says, could you please talk a little bit about what we may expect when managing our trailing stops during a really bad week? I was not an investing entity during 2008, and I got to thinking that even if my stops hit and I place a sell order, I may not be able to sell. Now, I'm not going to read the whole email, but I'm going to stop you right there. The idea that, that you have here, Matthew, is that, well, I'll just go on and I'll read your question down here. It says, I've heard that during a crisis, there can be periods of very poor liquidity. So even if I have trailing stops, what do you figure the chances are of selling everything near a 25% dip? And if you miss selling on your trailing stop due to poor liquidity and are now looking at a 40 to 50% loss in a position, is it worth considering canceling your sell order and riding it out, assuming the fundamentals on that position are good and you have the nerve to wait it out, maybe even for years? Okay, Matthew S., thank you. Matthew, you need, to, you need to make a decision. You need to understand what trailing stops are about. You're either going to use them or you're not. The point of a trailing stop is this. For me, this is what I think it is. You sell when you're down 20 or 25%, whatever trailing stop percentage you use, to avoid a catastrophic loss at a much, much lower level. And you might say, well, yeah, but... Um, you know, if, if the trailing stop is hit at 25% and then all of a sudden the stock is down 40 before I can sell, what do I do? I can't answer that question because it gets into offering individual advice. But I will tell you this. It sounds to me like you need to decide what kind of investor you are. And I would caution you against forgetting something that Nassim Taleb 
the guy who wrote Black Swan and a few other really fantastic books, something he calls uncle points. You know, people talk about holding long term and all these strategies and things, and they never talk about uncle points. What is an uncle point is the point at which the pain is so bad you can't, you just can't take it anymore. You can't think, you can't sleep, you can't eat, and you got to sell. And that's usually when you get, you know, your 60, 70, 80% losses, your catastrophic loss. And so selling at 25% is usually, we use these levels because we're trying to avoid much, much worse losses. And, it, it, you know, if, you're, if your stop is hit and the thing opens down 10 or 15 or 20% more the next day, are you a guy, or do you have an uncle point? If you have no uncle point and you're convinced that you can hold this thing through anything, that leads to one decision, doesn't it? If you recognize that you are indeed a human being and you have an uncle point, it's probably going to lead to a catastrophic loss. That leads you to another decision, I would presume. These are your decisions. I can't make them for you. But I want you to think about why you're using trailing stops in the first place. Okay? Good question. Very good question. It's on a lot of people's minds. That's why I read your email. Thank you, Matthew S. Next one is from Terry I. And Terry, I, I just pulled out your question. You had a longer longer email than this. First, I thought it was interesting that you actually hold more silver bullion coins than gold uh, listening to the rant. I, I did say that in a recent rant. So that being the case, I was curious why that is. And also, what is your thoughts on junk silver, older silver coins? And last, as a value investor, what are your thoughts of the companies listed in the America 2020 portfolio? Values, metrics, and long-term. I don't know the companies in the America 2020 portfolio. I'm sorry, I haven't looked at them. So I, I can't say anything about them. But the only reason I have, I, I just made an allocation decision. I said, you know, why, why do I have so much gold? And I thought that whether I was willing to acknowledge it or not, that I was you know, some of this capital could have been used better elsewhere. And I, in fact, what I did was I sold a few gold coins and I bought gold stocks with that. So that's it was just an allocation decision based on my own percentage of holdings. I wanted to have a little bit less bullion and and a little bit more. I wanted I still wanted to have gold, but I wanted exposure to businesses that were, you know, that would benefit from a higher gold price because I thought, well, Look, if we're near the bottom of the cycle, it looks stupid to sell gold coins, but it looks stupider not to use that money to buy deeply undervalued gold stocks. That was my thinking. That's that's why I wound up with more silver than gold. Also, I like the torque behind silver. You know, silver can really take off. When gold goes up 10%, silver can just fly, you know, 20, 30, 40%. All right, good questions. Number three is from Bruce C., and once again here, I don't think I got your whole email. Maybe I did. Dan, I enjoy listening every week. And although I've been an Alliance member for several years and an investor for many more, I still gain valuable insights from your show. The guest this week dissed CNBC. This was Mark Cahodes. We got lots of fantastic feedback about him last week. Your guest week dissed CNBC and his disdain is such that he never tunes in to CNBC. I find the news feed to be informative, and I learned to see through the agenda that permeates the broadcast, and I'm going to skip ahead here. Having said that, is there a better source of market news available, and what do you use to stay as well-informed as you clearly are every week? Bloomberg, in my view, is worse than CNBC, especially now that they dropped the sidebar news feed that was the best part of the broadcast. Thanks, Dan. Bruce C. Thank you, Bruce C. 
I actually do see that sidebar feed on Bloomberg sometimes, on Bloomberg TV. Uh, it's not there all the time, though. It's only there sometimes. And, you know, thank you for saying I'm well-informed, but I just get it from all over. I actually have, I think I've curated a pretty decent Twitter feed. Um, and I look at that and I look at Financial Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. You know, I, I, I get things from all over. So, but I think your point is that it doesn't matter where you get it from. And I agree with you here. You're suggesting it doesn't matter that you watch CNBC. It matters how you watch it. And I totally agree with you, Bruce. Totally. Okay. Got two more of these. This one is from Courtney H. And let's see. Um, this is a long email. So I'm going to cut into where you say, I have been preparing to dip my toes in the global financial markets through lots of education, through things like this podcast, the Daily Wealth emails, and different perspectives of smart money individuals, Ray Dalio, the geniuses of Berkshire, etc., and other random people on YouTube. I tried technical analysis and options, but lost all my money, so decided to go back to the drawing board, where recently I have decided to have a crack at the CFA certification. I've already started studying and planned... My plan is to do the first exam in December. My question to you is this. Do you think that it is worth doing this exam? Is it overkill or would it not be sufficient? I'm not sure how familiar you are with the certification or if you know anyone who is certified who you can point to as someone who used it as a way to equip themselves for the work. I ask you because you are not from a financial background like me. I am a programmer software developer. Do you know if there are any transferable skills I may have that could be used in my investing? I hope what I'm asking makes sense. I know that you read all the emails, so thanks for reading this. Hope you answer. Keep up the good work and take care. Courtney H. Regards, Courtney H. Thank you, Courtney. Okay, I don't have a CFA, and I don't really, so I can't speak to the experience of having one or going through the process of studying for one. But I asked this question. I asked a couple of my friends um, who have them, and and they all, without a doubt, they all said, yeah, it was worth doing, but they have careers in finance. I assume you're, you know, you're, you're talking about switching from programming and software developing to finance. And I think, especially like for a mid-career shift like that, getting a CFA certification or something like it, you know, uh, some people get master's degrees or whatever. It makes a lot of sense and people will look at it. And, and I've been told by people who have the CFA that it helped them get a job when they were brand new to finance. And that's all I can really tell you. So good luck. Last one from Andrew. I didn't get his last initial. Sorry, Andrew, <laughs> but you'll recognize your question. Dan, good day. You're great. I love your show. The shows are so good. I want to send you feedback each week, but the days have gone so quick this summer. I missed the chance to send you a note. I have a good problem and question to ask your thoughts on. I've learned a tremendous amount from being a Stansberry subscriber. I have a few memberships and recently joined credit opportunities. That's Stansberry credit opportunities as another weapon against the interesting market dynamics we face today. Why is this a good problem? Well, I've received far more good stock ideas than cash to put to work. Nearly all my positions are gains. Those that are down have not yet hit trailing straps to cash out. How do you think about when companies have reached the time to sell? A recent podcast spoke of the merits of creating a decision journal to improve quality of choices. I'm afraid I do not know the catalysts, nor have the skills to value companies in order to map that systematic approach. Also, Richard Smith the guy from Trade Stops, who we had on as a guest several episodes ago, 
would say to let winners run and cut the losers. Any words of wisdom would be great. Keep up the fantastic work, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. So you're asking me, you're, you're saying you have more good stock ideas than cash to put to work. So I can't give you specific advice, but I have to wonder what this means because you know, you can buy one share. I mean, you, you maybe, I don't know how much money you have versus how much each share costs, right? You, I mean, if you have $500, it could be a problem. But you know, if you have several thousand dollars, you can take small positions if you think something is really worth owning, but you don't want to shrink another position. That's just one thought. And then you ask specifically, how do you think about when companies have reached the time to sell? It sounds to me like you're using trailing stops because you mentioned that you have stocks that haven't hit their stops yet. So you've already got sell discipline in place. And you've said here, I am afraid I do not know the catalyst or have the skills to value companies to map that systematic approach, meaning, meaning you didn't want to use a decision journal to try to improve the quality of your choices, including the quality of selling, uh, because you didn't feel that it would be worth your time to do it. And it sounds like you're you're already set. You know when to sell because you're using trailing stops. And, you know, if you have more good ideas than cash, that is a good problem. And, you know, you could use smaller position sizes to do that if you don't want to shrink other positions. Also, you know, there's no shame in rebalancing. You want, you do, I agree with Richard. We want to let winners run and we want to cut losers. There's no shame in, in rebalancing, uh, in giving up, you know, one, you know, say if something is 10 or 20 or 30% of your portfolio, maybe you only want it to be 15 or 20% and you want to take the rest and put it into one of those new ideas. There are different ways to do this, is what I'm saying. And if you really do have more good ideas than cash, boy, you're a better man than I, because I just don't, I'm not finding enough to do. Thank you, Andrew. Great question. Lots of great questions. That's it for the mailbag. And that concludes another episode of Stansberry Investor Hour. Darn it. It's over. It's over that quick. All right. So be sure to check out our website where you can listen to every episode and see a transcript of every episode. And you can enter your email to get updates for every episode when they come out. Isn't that cool? Just go to that same email address, www.investorhour.com. I'm Dan Ferris. I'm your host. And it is my privilege to come to you once again this week, as it is every week. And I look forward to doing so again next week. That's it for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email at feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is provided for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network.